At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Well, they say that hindsight is 2020. Can you agree with that? Are there instances in your life that you look back and say, oh, I'm, oh, that makes sense now. Uh, 10 years ago, is that me? Nope. 10 years ago, if I need to do something different, Todd, just wave at me. Uh, I was living in Ohio with Allie. We were living there together. Easy now, easy now. We were in uh, the, my first house, which I would call cozy and quirky. <laughs> it was a 1900 house. Anybody had an old house? Money pit? It was really, it was, yeah, Barrett, seriously. <laughs> uh, it, it was great. It was great for me as a single guy. It was great for us as, as a young married couple. But uh, we knew that it was time for us to start looking for something else uh, as we also looked for a family. To, to build a family. And so uh, we started that process and we found this amazing house from this lovely older couple that was looking to downsize. And this was out, it's a, it was outside of town a little bit. It had some acreage, it had beautiful trees, the landscaping, which I love to do. I mean, there was just so much great opportunity and potential. And the inside was, it was, it was ready to be moved in, but it needed some, needed some work, which we like to put in the, the labor to make it look like our our style. And so we were so excited about this. <clears throat> and we went on vacation with my family. So we were out east uh, on vacation. And I got a call while on vacation. And as I recall, it was about three days before closing. And the people who were, had agreed we were under contract to buy our house backed out. And all of a sudden, I'll keep a long story short, everything fell apart. We lost the house that we really, really wanted. We had no buyer for our own house and, and we were stuck because we couldn't afford to, to buy this bigger house until we had sold this other one. And it was, it was uh, really devastating to us, really, really frustrating because we had spent a lot of time finding a buyer for our house. We did buy owner next time. Amber, you can, you can help us, right? Uh, and I'm so thankful that we lost the house because... Little did we know that just a few days after that, we would find out that the chemo that Allie had been undergoing had started to be effective, and then it wasn't effective. And so there was a whole new course of treatment that we would, that we would have to enter into, which took six to nine months and drastically changed our lives. And the truth is, we wouldn't have had the physical, mental, emotional reserve for that bigger house that needed all this, all this upkeep if we had gone through with it. And so though it hurt and though it was so disappointing, we looked back on it and said, oh, we're so glad that God closed that door. And the truth is he opened up another door later that was a great home for us to begin our family. What seems sometimes so terrible and chaotic in our lives, sometimes we can look back and say, Oh, it was actually really good. God, you were up to something. Well, during these seven weeks of our Genesis family series, we've been walking through the first families of 
everything. Civilization, right? I mean, so it's beginning with Adam and Eve and then, and then uh, moving toward some of the different characters that we've seen in this very true story. We see Abraham and, and then his family. And so we've been uh, very much aware that you don't have to have your act together for God to use you because these people were a hot mess and yet God still in his sovereign grace worked despite tragedy and, and chaos to do something good. And in case you're unfamiliar with our teaching series, or maybe you're just even unfamiliar with the book of Genesis, let me just give a couple of bullet point uh, overviews for you. So in Genesis, we see God created humans. He creates male and female, and he gives them something very special that nobody else has. None of the animals, nothing else in creation. He gives them their Im- his image. And he says, I want you to reflect me. This is what I'm like, and I've, I have given you my image for you to enjoy fellowship with me. So they had wonderful relationship with God. They had wonderful relationship between the two of them, Adam and Eve. They had the opportunity to care for and steward his world. All this beautiful stuff, but, and there's oftentimes a but in the story, but rebellion entered the world and chaos on its heels. When Adam and Eve decided, nah, we know better than God, Chaos and sin entered in the cosmos. But we begin to see God's plan of redemption. He begins to roll out a plan. He's giving some hints. And he chooses a family that is Abraham's family that we learned several weeks ago. That this family was going to be the family through which God was going to rescue humanity from this chaos, from this sin. And though the true and raw story uh, of this family is all in Scripture, it's crazy that some of it ended up in there, uh, and God in his sovereignty put it there, we do learn, though, about God's design and what his plan is, his purpose for the family, and really by extension, not just the family, but all of human creation, all all of humans we learn from the early pages of Genesis. And even though humanity, and this is really us, even though we stray, we continue in this pattern of rebellion, right? We think we know better than God and we're going to turn, turn this way. God, man, he's on a mission. He is faithful. He's going to fulfill this mission that he started out, even though we make terrible choices. And the truth is, God reigns over the chaos, particularly in relationships, as we've seen in this series and as we'll see in our text today. So we're finishing the book of Genesis and our series today, and I invite you if you got a copy of a Bible or in front of you or online, Genesis 31 through 50, all 449 verses. We're going to go very slowly because it's a long holiday weekend and you have no other plans, so let's just park out here for a little... No. It's actually kind of hard to prepare a sermon for a text that's this big, Genesis 37 to 50. I mean, that is a lot. That's a lot. And so what we're going to do today is very much a survey. We're going to just fly over it and we're going to drop into the story here and there because there are some nuggets and then, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up together at the very end. But we are going to see the continued saga of Jacob and his family and the generations. And we are going to meet uh, one fine character in this. And so let me start reading Genesis 37 verses 1. Jacob lived in the, fa- in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. 
And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, by the way, that's Jacob, because God has changed his name. So now we have Jacob, who's now called Israel, the sons of Israel. That's how we, how we get it. <clears throat> Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So right out the bat, four verses, we have unpacked for us some family chaos. The dysfunction continues in this narrative. And so can you see that in these verses? I'm going to call out just a handful of them of the, the dysfunction. So first of all, we see favoritism in here. Now let me give a little bit of background because it talks about different people and Jacob loving, loving sons more than, than others. And so Jacob had two wives and two concubines. Complicated. Glad we don't do that now. So two wives, two complicated, uh, complicated concubines and, and multiple children from multiple women. But Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife And Rachel was barren for many, many years until God finally opened up her womb and she was able to conceive and bear the first son, Joseph, and then his brother, Benjamin. And by this point, Jacob's an old man. And so when the text says that that Joseph was the the child of his old age, it's because it's his favorite wife and it's the, the first son that she bore. And so there was favoritism because of his position and who his mom was. And then there's favoritism uh, and honor with Joseph because of this special fancy frock. You know, this colorful robe that that his dad gives him that that nobody else that just came to me, fancy frock. We don't usually wear frocks, but does it really matter if he got this special robe, right? It's colorful. I'm sure it was nice. Does it really matter? Is it just a robe? Well, no, it's not just a robe. I did a little bit of reading about it this, this week, and one commentator describes it as let me get this right, sleeved and extended to the ankles, which I'm just hot thinking about it. I mean, this is like in the Middle East where it's hot all the time and he's he's wearing this long sleeve, colorful robe that probably goes all the way to his ankles. And the point of it though is that this would be an ornamental garment that would be given to someone of nobility, someone who's really important, really special that, that you give this as a gift now, if you wear a long sleeves and a long, you know, ankle length robe, you're not really doing work, manual labor very well. So I'm sure that this favoritism wasn't just like, hey, he got a nice coat. This was, Joseph doesn't have to do this anymore. He doesn't have to do the work that his brothers are doing. His father is honoring him and elevating him by giving him this garment. And then, okay, there's, there's, a, there's a little bit... Um, a little bit here where we're also seeing that a younger brother is being elevated over older brothers. And does that sound familiar? And I'm like, Jacob, seriously, you're, go- you're doing this all over again? Do you remember what he did? Last week, we, we learned about what he did with his brother. His brother Esau was the firstborn and was rightfully the one to get the birthright and the blessing. And yet Jacob, through deception, stole it from his brother. He got it. And so now he's again perpetuating this same thing where he's elevating a a younger over the older. And then to make matters even more complicated, we didn't read it, but Genesis 35 talks about the oldest son of Jacob, Reuben, sleeping with Bilhah, his 
dad's concubine. That's weird, and it's messed up, and it complicates things even further. So maybe a coat's not just a coat. Maybe it's that Jacob, I don't know, maybe he's poking at the family pecking order. Or maybe he's just passive and really foolish. But his favoritism through this coat really stirs up emotion. And we see it in in here in the text. It's hatred. Joseph is bringing a report about his brothers to his dad, saying, Dad, you're not going to like this, but this is what they're doing. And verse 4 tells us that his brothers feel hatred toward him, such that they can't even speak peacefully to him. I walk into a room where there's tension and I can just feel it. You you ever like want to cut it with a knife in the air? You can just feel that. That's what this home was like. They couldn't even speak peacefully to him. They hated him. And later in verse 18, when he goes out to a field again, his dad sends him out again to check on them. They're hatching a plan to kill him. So like real healthy family dynamic, right? The next, uh, the next thing we see in here, this chaos, this dysfunction, is jealousy that the text calls out. And I'll summarize uh, verses 5 through 11, where Joseph is a dreamer. And so he has these two particular dreams, one about crops and the other about sun, moon, and stars. But the point of it is that he is bowed down to by his family. So the, the crops and the, the heavenly uh, planets and stars are bowing down to him. And he tells his family about it. I don't know if that was the smartest move, but he does. And spoiler alert, God is actually foretelling what's going to happen in his life. It's a prophetic dream, though he doesn't know it at the time. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him, and and his family doesn't either. but, But it does say in verse 11 that his brothers were jealous of him because of these dreams. And so Joseph's already wearing a fancy coat, and he's being honored and now he's like dreaming that everybody's bowing down to him, that he's this really special guy. And so it's almost like a powder keg is about to blow. And blow it does. And we move on to the next dysfunction, and that is betrayal. And we learn in Genesis 37, verse 18, that they see him coming from afar out to the field. And before he came, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say a fierce animal has devoured him. We'll see what becomes of his dreams. And so they throw him in the pit. He's not dead, but they throw him in the pit. And verse 25 says, then they sat down to eat. Seriously? What a disgusting family that they're like planning and plotting to kill their their brother. And they throw him in this pit. And now let's have lunch. Let's have a little snack, guys. This is like that. That is so messed up. And looking up, the text goes on, looking up, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites. And so this is a a group of uh, travelers on their way to Egypt to sell, to trade. And so Judah steps up and says, well, let's not kill him. Let's actually spare his life. Let's sell him so that our hands are not dirty and, and guilty. Let's just sell him. And that is exactly what happens. 20 shekels of silver later, Joseph is on his way to Egypt And he sees his brothers no more. But despite the chaos, so lots of chaos, God would reveal his providential control over the life of Joseph, though it feels like it is spiraling out of control. Now, remember that 2020 hindsight I opened with? Not yet. Joseph can't look back yet. He still is like, I'm with 
people that I don't know and my family just betrayed me and I'm going to a place that I have no idea what to expect. So he's not at that point yet. But it's an amazing story that I'm going to give another spoiler alert with the invitation to read it for yourself. It does work out for good. It works out for amazing good. And as I read all of these chapters this week, as I studied them, there was this recurring theme and phrase that kept coming up. And what is the difference in the life of Joseph? God was with him. God was with Joseph. And if you are a note taker in your Bible or you underline or highlight or circle, like you should go through and circle or call out every time it says that God was with Joseph. Great encouragement for you to remember that, that if it was true about Joseph, it's true about you. We'll get to that. And so he had this persistent, life-giving presence of God that not only caused him to succeed, but also caused so many people around Joseph to flourish. And so as the narrative continues, this is where we're just going to kind of like do a flyover narrative. Uh, Joseph is spared from death. So he goes to Egypt. He's sold as a slave. And he ends up in the household of an Egyptian VIP, a, a military man named Potiphar. Now you think about the challenges, the adjustment that a 17-year-old, didn't say he was 17, would have to face going to this new place. So he's going from what is familiar and with his family to a place where he's completely forgotten in a foreign land. So culturally, very different, or a different place. Culturally as well. I mean, if you think about he's uh, rural, pretty unsophisticated, nomadic life that he's known. And now he's in like the civilization of Egypt, which is an amazing culture. And not just in any household, but he's in somebody who's pretty, pretty high up. Potiphar was a leading guy in the Egyptian military. And then you also have to recognize there's a faith component. So he'd grown up hearing the promise of God through his family. And now he is in a place that's very pagan, doesn't worship Yahweh. And truthfully, nobody would know or care if he turned his back on the faith that he grew up with. They just wouldn't care. So he's facing all these adjustments in his life as a teenager, which is a lot. We don't have any uh, crazy experience of of cultural adjustment like that, but one one thing did come to mind is when we lived in Ohio, uh, so I, I had grown up out east, Allie grew up out east, and then I came to Ohio for school and lived there afterward. And when Allie and I got married, she moved from downtown Chicago. She had been living, working at Moody Bible Institute. Downtown had an apartment right in the city. And when she moved there, not being a city girl, uh, her friend, Steph, said to her some, some driving advice, hesitate and die. <laughs> so so the, the option is, like, if you hesitate, you're, you're going to get hit. Like, you just got to, like, let me be safe about it, but just go. If you hesitate, you die. So that was the advice for Allie. And then she moves, uh, when we got married, literally to the cornfields. Like, literally. We had tractors driving up and down our, our farm road. And uh, she commented about, about Ohio just being a much slower pace of life. People were slower behind the wheel. 
the grocery store checkout people wanted to talk to you about all the, oh, look at, look at this product. You know, just all this running commentary. Everything was just slower, and they were lovely people. But it, w- it was a little bit of a cultural adjustment for her from, from city life to cornfield life. And that says nothing. That does not even compare to the culture shock that Joseph experienced when he got to Egypt. But he adjusted. And he flourished as well. Why? I said it before. God, talk back to me. God was with him. God was with him. All along. Highs and lows. And Joseph has long been one of my favorite characters in scripture because of how he faced adversity, how he responded to the challenges and the trials of his life. There are a few things I just want to call out that I love about Joseph. His integrity, he was a really good worker and everything he did flourished. God was with him, it says in Genesis 39.3. His master, that's Potiphar, saw the Lord was with him and, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And because he's so good, he's given more responsibility. So he shows integrity. He gets more responsibility. Potiphar put him in charge of everything. And again, it says, the Lord was with him. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The Lord was on all that he had. And then there's an interesting verse, Genesis 39, 6, that says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So he was apparently really good looking and had good form, whatever that definition was in, in that in that time period. He, was, he had it. And when presented an invitation from Potiphar's wife, maybe she had his eye, her eye on him for a while, and she invited, hey, let's sleep together. Come on. And he said, no, I don't want to dishonor my master or my God. So he has integrity not only in his work and in increased responsibility, but also in his resistance to temptation. And God uh, continued to bless him, even though he ends up in prison. So he's maimed by Potter, Mrs. Potiphar, and he ends up in prison, even though he did nothing to deserve it, but she concocted some story. He ends up in prison. And you know what happens in prison? The prison keeper is like, this guy's good. Let me put him in charge of stuff. And so, indeed, God blessed him. He was with him. He flourished. So did the, the prison uh, keeper. All of this stuff happens because... God was with him. So he shows integrity. He shows patience. Do you know he had to sit in that jail cell for over two years? Waiting, 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 waiting. Scripture gives us a little bit of the indication of what what happens during those years and some of the people he interacts with. But Joseph says, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here I am. I've done nothing that they should put me in this pit. And he waited. And he waited with patience. And then, by the hand of God, he had a a stunning move from prisoner to prime minister. And there was this elevation that he received because God was with him and allowed him to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh puts him in this place of prominence and position. And so we see Joseph's um, power and his influence and the flourishing that happens. And again, God is blessing Pharaoh through Joseph. I mean, it's just the same story of God is with him. God is with him. He's helping him. He's, honestly, he's helping him not only to help the Egyptians be ready for this catastrophic famine that's coming, 
but he also was using him to save his very own family. Because as you jump many, many chapters forward, back at the ranch, Jacob's family is in trouble. There's this famine. They don't have food. They learn about food in Egypt because Joseph was so smart to start storing it up over many years. And so Jacob sends a bunch of the boys down to Egypt to buy. Without them knowing that God supernaturally and providentially ordained that their brother that they sold off as a slave would be the one that they would interact with. And oh, the irony, right? The very person they wanted dead was actually the person they most needed to keep them alive. Tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. And even though they had jealousy and hatred and, and betrayal and treachery, all these things to him years ago, God shows them a whole lot of grace when Joseph forgives them. Joseph is humble, and he forgives his brothers. And he can say at the very end, you know, you meant this for evil. Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, That's the flyover of of Joseph's life. I'm sure you have experiences in your life. There are times that you can look back and say, with 2020 hindsight, oh, that's what you were doing, God. That's what you were up to. I'm glad that you kept me from this, or I'm glad that I fill in the blank for you. He arranges our circumstances amazingly. He's with us. And I just want to give a little encouragement, by the way. Be sure that you testify about those things. When you recognize those things, write them down for yourself and tell them to others. Because, you know, I I need reminders along the way of, you see the track record of God? You see what he's done? I tend to forget those things. When he answers prayer requests amazingly or miraculously, it's really great, and then we just kind of move on, and we forget those things. And so make note of those and tell people about what you've seen God do. It will encourage you and it will encourage them. But it's not just 2020 hindsight that I really want to park at. I want to actually call our attention to the reality of our 2020 spiritual foresight. So there's good in looking backward and seeing God's faithfulness. But I want to call our attention through the life of Joseph to the reality that we should look forward and understand with clarity what God is doing. Because scripture is clear that God's goal is to change us and to make us more like Christ. Christ's redeeming work is the goal of our good father. And he uses all sorts of things to do that. We're reminded in scripture in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we're being transformed, Paul writes, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So it's not just like a magical thing that happens all at once, but it's one degree of glory. It's one step. It's one change, little bit at a time that we change to become more like Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 8.29 that, remember, this is those he foreknew and he predestines, predestined. The goal is to be conformed to the image of a son. And he goes later on to say in Romans that we're not to be conformed to the world The goal is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so we renew our minds. That is the mission of God, is to make us more like Jesus. 
And so we see elements, as we look at the life of Joseph, we see elements of God's redeeming work in his life. He elevates him so that he's in a position to save not only many people in Egypt, but he's in a position to preserve and to save God's family, the one through whom the blessing would come. That they don't die of a famine because Joseph is there. God redeems that. He redeems it even through his kids, his family. Do you know that Joseph was given a wife when he became prime minister and he had two sons with her that we're told about. And he chose Hebrew names for these two boys. And his firstborn was named Manasseh. And the Hebrew root of the word Manasseh is to forget. And Joseph goes on to say, it's so beautiful that God redeems his story. He says, God made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. What a dark spot in the, in the history, the story of Joseph. He is loved by his father. He loved his father, and yet he was betrayed, and he was forgotten, left for dead. And for him to be able to say, okay, I've forgotten all the hardship. And then his second-born son, Ephraim, the root of that in Hebrew is fruitful. And so not only did God give him a son to help him forget, but Joseph was twice blessed in a place that was such a, a place of affliction and hardship. God redeemed his story even through his kids. And later he restores him in relationship to his family, definitely with his brothers. There's forgiveness, there's reconciliation there, but he gets to be with his dad again before his dad dies and they spend years together. And, you know, the other way that God redeems the life of Joseph is that his chosen people are brought to Egypt and they are just lavished by Pharaoh. They're given the best land. Pharaoh says, like, you don't even have to bring your stuff, whatever you need. It's here. God redeemed such hard hardship and difficulty in the life of Joseph by caring for him and his special people. And you know, friends, God has a track record of restoring and renewing and redeeming our lives by the power of the cross and the, and the work that he's up to in our life. A few nights ago, Allie and I were on a FaceTime call with a friend um, who's been walking through some, some real difficulty, and we've been with her in it for a couple years. And uh, we were praising God because of some of the, the things that have happened. Um, and so she was giving us an update. And I told her about my, my sermon preparation. And she reminded me, she told me about this a couple of years ago. She's kind of an artist as a, uh, as a hobby. And she reminded me of this Japanese art form that's called kintsugi. And the art of kintsugi, I'll put a couple pictures up there, is, is this fixing broken pottery with gold. And so if you have broken pottery, you could take a clear adhesive, swipe it, and piece it all together. But in Japan, many, many, many centuries ago, they came up with this where it's an adhesive that is speckled with gold dust or, or precious metal dust. And so what you see here is actually a distinct piece that I think is even more beautiful than the original. They didn't, thankfully, throw out this powdery, they pieced it back together and they made it into a work of art. And the lady, the, the article I was reading about this, she said that it celebrates each artifact's unique history by emphasizing its fractures and breaks instead of hiding or, dis or disguising them. 
And isn't that a picture of our life in Christ? Full of cracks, full of breaks and chaos, but God can piece things together in a beautiful way. Doesn't Paul write that we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power of God, so that, so that the surpassing power of God is not us, it's him. He's the one who pieces it all together in such a beautiful way. And you know, I think one of the reasons that I have always loved the life of Joseph so much is because it reminds me of one who is even greater. Let me compare them for you. Joseph went looking for his brothers in a field and it led to his affliction and separation from his family. And like Joseph, Jesus came looking for people. He was a shepherd. So he came to the field and he came to gather people under his care, to shepherd them, to care for them. And he too was afflicted and separated. Joseph experienced jealousy and hatred and treachery at the hands of his brothers. And like Joseph, Jesus experienced jealousy and hatred from his brothers. The Jewish leaders despised him. They conspired for him to die. Joseph noted that God had sent him to Egypt to preserve a remnant on the earth, to save people. And just like Joseph, Jesus was sent by God the Father to save people and to rescue those who were lost. Joseph suffered unjustly. He suffered for crimes that were not his. And like Joseph, Jesus, the perfect and holy one, suffered unjustly. And he was put to death for crimes that he did not commit. Our crimes. Joseph was elevated to a position of authority to bring goodness and salvation to people. And praise God, like Joseph, Jesus is also elevated to a position. He rose from the, from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And he has all authority and he brings salvation and goodness to all who call on his name. That is what we believe. That is the gospel. Joseph wept for his brothers when they came for him before, before him during the famine. And Jesus wept over those as well who did not come to him, but rejected him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He mourned for them. Joseph prepared a feast for his brothers despite their mistreatment of him. And Jesus, we see always at the table, gathering people around, even the Pharisees who would kill him. And Joseph revealed himself and extended grace to his guilty brothers. And like Joseph, Jesus has been revealed to us as the very fulfillment of the promise of the very, very messy and dysfunctional family of Abraham. But God used that family with all of its warts, all of its imperfections, all of its chaos. You trace the line down through. There's a whole bunch more twists and turns with some of the people in that family tree. But through Jesus, he welcomes people into fellowship again with God, which is what we just celebrated in song and in taking communion together. And so Jesus is the true and the better Joseph, the one who is with me and whom I've given my allegiance in my whole life an invitation to say, please redeem the mess, the brokenness. And so as we finish our series today, we see with clarity 
No family's too messy. You can put yourself on par with Abraham and, and his descendants. You're in pretty good company. God used them amazingly by his grace, and he reigns over them. He has providential control over his people. The great preacher F.B. Meyer of the early 1900s wrote that Joseph, little did he know he would look back on his brother's betrayal as he writes this, as one of the most gracious links in a chain of loving providences. Isn't that beautiful? This chain of loving providences. And he would say, don't be grieved or angry. He says to his brothers, don't be grieved or angry. God sent me here. And this pastor writes, it is very sweet as life passes by to be able to look back on dark and mysterious events and to trace the hand of God where we once saw only the malice and the cruelty of men. So maybe today is the first day that you see with clarity the redeeming work of Jesus, where you recognize your inability in the invitation of the cross. Maybe it's the umpteenth time for you today to come back and to receive grace and mercy and reminder of your identity and what he wants to do in your life. Friends, he is with us. He is with us. He is redeeming things. Joseph wasn't forsaken, though he probably felt it. He had God's presence. God used him and he changed him and he changed the whole world through this really broken family for his glory. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.